We are continuing on in our study in the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to be in chapter 2, page 910, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We'll get to the scripture in just a second. Let me review where we have come from to get to this point before we read this morning's scripture. As we have been working through Acts, I have told you that Acts really is the story of transformation. That this is Luke's second part. He wrote, he wrote two books and had them put together, really. Uh, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts are one long story. And the book of Acts begins to show the transformation that happens in the lives of the apostles. And we see it right off, right here at the very beginning. We've been talking through these stories of the ways that the apostles have been changed, how they're different now. And even in, in just in the end of chapter 1 and in the beginning of chapter 2, how they change. And then specifically, two weeks ago, as we looked at the story of Pentecost, we talked about how not only are the disciples changed, but now God is changing them, that God comes and begins to work and live inside of them. And so at the beginning of, of, or two weeks ago, at the beginning of chapter two, I shared with you just a little bit about the story of Pentecost, when it happened and, and what it meant for the disciples and for those first 120 believers that were gathered together. Pentecost, as I said, literally means 50. It's 50 days after Passover. Jesus, uh, the Passover celebration was the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. Jesus is crucified during the Passover celebration. And then we know that he stays with the disciples after his resurrection for about 40 days. So then there's 10 days where the disciples are gathered together in an upper room, praying, wondering what might be next. What does God have for them? Jesus has given them instructions to go and to wait in Jerusalem for his helper to come. And so they do. They gather together in a room. They wait for about 10 days. In the midst of that, they choose a, another apostle to fill the spot that Judas vacated. They gather together and then... On Pentecost, on that 50th day after Passover, they're gathered in the room. It's the Feast of Weeks. It's the Feast of First Fruits. And on this day, we begin to see the first fruits of the church and the first fruits of the promise that God has given to his people. The Holy Spirit shows up in the room with the believers. He comes in a sound like a wind he comes in a sight like fire that dances on their heads. He comes in soul-filling satisfaction. He comes with different speech, different languages that they begin to speak, and he comes in signs. And we talked that day about how it was really a reversal of the curse. If you see Pentecost and you can associate it to, to Genesis chapter, chapter 11 and chapter 12, the story of the Tower of Babel where, where God confuses speech and scatters people around the world. And then in chapter 12 when he says to Abram, I'm going to bless all of the nations through you, through your family, through your descendants. And Pentecost is, is the unraveling of that. Pentecost is, is the disciples now not knowing any other languages but speaking all kinds of other languages so that people might hear. People who have 
been scattered around the world and are now gathered back in Jerusalem on this day to hear the message that the disciples are sharing, that Peter is about to share with us. It's an unraveling of the curse. And since two weeks ago, as I shared that, a couple of you, a number of you have come to me and we've, and we've talked about this idea of, of loving to see the unraveling of the curse of the Old Testament being unraveled in the New Testament. Andrew Knight was here last Sunday and shared some of those same ideas. I loved last week when he talked about the, the angels coming to Jesus after his temptation and that in the, in the garden, the angels are guarding the garden so that Adam and Eve can't get back in and can't get to the tree of eternal life. And they... They guard the garden, but they minister to Jesus who has proven himself as he's fought temptation. I I love the picture of the unraveling of the curse from the Old Testament to the New. Today's story, uh, today's message that Peter shares in Acts, it has a similar comparison to the Old Testament. There's a a passage in Numbers chapter 11. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but But there's a story in the Old Testament where Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt. And he is leading leading the people. They have all kinds of problems and concerns, and they're bringing them to Moses. He's the leader. God has, has blessed him and given him a special spirit upon him. And so Moses... Is, is leading all the people, he's answering their questions, he's, he's deciding disputes, he is the judge, he's the prophet, he is the leader of the people. And his father-in-law Jethro comes to him and says, Moses, you're, you can't do this, you're wearing yourself out, you, you cannot continue to do what you're doing, it, it, it's not healthy for you and it's not good for the people. And Moses, through Jethro, gets word that, that God is going to raise up other leaders in the Israelite people. And so they, they get, gather together 70 other men who come together in a spot and God blesses them. He sends his spirit on those 70 men so that they also might help Moses, so that they might be able to lead people, settle disputes, give guidance. He has a special, God has a special spirit that sets on those, on those 70 men. And there's some dispute about what happens. A couple of the guys leave the marked area that they're supposed to be in, and Joshua runs back to Moses to tell him that. And the verse that was on the screen as you came into the sanctuary this morning out of Numbers chapter 11 was Moses replying back to Joshua and, and saying, are, are, are you worried be, about me, about my name? Are you jealous for my sake? And then Moses says this, would all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses says, someday, wouldn't it be great if God put his spirit, not just on these 70 guys to help settle the disputes and to know what God is leading and the ways that he's leading and what he wants us to do, but wouldn't it be great if someday that Lord's spirit would settle on all of his people and not just on these 70? That's what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 today. Peter begins to explain, what does this mean? What does it mean that God's spirit has come and that there's been fire dancing on their heads, that they're speaking in languages that they've never known? What does it mean? We're going to read it together here in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. 
And they were all amazed. And they were perplexed. And they were saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and they said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has, ma has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the angels, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. 
it would be crazy for me this morning. It would be presumptuous for me this morning to think that I might have a better message than what Peter preached right here. 3,000 people come to understand that Jesus is the way and join the church. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to, to share, I want to look at what he said, I want to, to pull out a few principles from what he shared for us, and, and then I want to really rejoice this morning in the results. Because what Peter has shared is, is the message. It is the sermon this morning. And so I just want to walk through it a little bit. I want, to, I want to help us to maybe better understand it a little bit, but there's nothing that I can do to make it any greater than what it already is. It starts, our passage that we read, we even backed up a couple verses, if you noticed, as you're reading through your own Bible there this morning. At the end of, of Pentecost, as all of these men are speaking, um, they don't know what to do with it. The people that are watching don't know how to handle it, and, and, and they're saying, what is this? And some people even begin to sarcastically say, they must be drunk. They must be filled with new wine. They, they, that's the only reason why they're, they're jabbering the way that they are. And Peter begins his sermon here at the, the beginning of this passage really as a, as a rebuttal to that, as a retort to that. These guys are not drunk. It's the, it's the morning. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, he says. They're not drunk. But what he says next is, they are not drunk, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is the first thing I want you to see this morning, is that Peter, again, just as he did earlier when we were, were talking about them finding the, 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 the disciple to fill Judas's empty spot, he did the same thing there. Peter is a man of Scripture, and he begins his message with a rebuttal by saying, these guys aren't drunk, it's nine o'clock in the morning, and then he says, this is the word of the Lord. This comes from Joel. He shares three scriptures in his message. He shares from Joel chapter two, he quotes there. He has another quote in a little bit from Psalm 16, and then a third quote from Psalm 110. Peter's, the majority of, of what Peter shares in this message is scripture, pointing, pointing the hearers back to God's word. He uses this first passage in Joel chapter two, he uses this first passage to remind them, to remind them that long ago God promised a spirit, that God's spirit would come. That this is just, again, the first fruits of that promise beginning to be found here. He uses the passage telling him that it might be the last days. If you remember the, the apostles, the, when Jesus ascends into heaven, they, they, they actually just stand and stare, thinking that at any moment Jesus might return, if you remember that, that portion. And instead the angels come and they say, why are you looking up into the sky? He's, he's going to come back, but it's not gonna be right now. Go, listen to the instructions. Obey what Jesus has called you to do. And so that's where they go and, and fill that role, that disciple role, and then gather in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come. They knew, they, they, they thought 
that the last days were right now. And so as Peter begins to share these last day things, as he's standing there that day thinking about the spirit coming on him, that they, they believe this might be the last days. He had no idea that here we are 2,000 years later still waiting for the return of Christ, still waiting for him to come back the way that he left. But he shares this passage to say, here we are as we enter into these last days, the spirit of God is going to be poured out on all flesh, on sons and daughters, young men, old men, male servants, female servants. His spirit will be poured out. It was promised long ago, Peter says, and this is the culmination of that promise. He also uses this passage in Joel at the end in verse 21 of of Acts. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, Peter knows the word. He uses this passage to say this is the promise from the Old Testament that the Spirit is going to come and he begins to set up. He begins to set up where he's headed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is where we're going. The Spirit has come, and all who call on his name will be saved. He continues on. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. He says, says, this this is who it's about. It's about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. He did all these mighty works, all these mighty wonders, the signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus delivered up according to a definite plan and foreknowledge. This Jesus. And then he quotes, then he quotes from Psalm 16. It says, God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then uses Psalm 16 to, re- to remind, again, to remind those early church, those early believers who, who understood the Old Testament but did not believe in Jesus yet. He uses that Old Testament to say, early on, way back in Psalm 16, David has said, David has said that there will be one who rises from the grave, that he will loose the pangs of death, that he will not abandon his soul to Hades, but, and he will not let his Holy One seek corruption, but you will make known to him the paths of life. He goes on to say, this day, these words that David was speaking, they could not be about him. You know it, he says. You know that David lived and then died and was buried and his grave, his tomb is still here. We know where it is. We know that he's here. And so we know that these words are not about David, but they have to be about the one that's yet to come. And then a little later, he quotes from Psalm 110, where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemies of your footstool. Again, God speaking to someone that's greater than David, the Lord speaking to my Lord, someone greater than David, saying, come and sit at my footstool. The hearers automatically would have known that he was saying that, that God spoke to the Son and Peter was making it plain as day to them that Jesus was God's Son and had been raised and now sat at the right hand of the Father. Peter, in his message, knows that Scripture, Scripture is what it's all about. He doesn't say, this is what I think might be happening as this Holy Spirit comes upon me. I think this is maybe where we're at. No. He says right away, this is what was uttered. Starts with Joel. 
heads to David in the Psalms. He uses scripture. But the second thing that he does over and over and over, he uses scripture to point to Jesus. He uses scripture to point to Jesus. He says, says, Jesus Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, this man that was attested to you by God, he did all of these things. He he, he even gives a picture of, of God's sovereignty when he says, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He knew what was going to happen. God knew what was going to happen. This man, Jesus, you crucified him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. A little later in in verse um, 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He was poured out so that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. Peter points to Jesus. He uses scripture to point them to Jesus. That there's nowhere else for them to go. There's no other name for them to call out. That it's all about Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, he did signs and works and wonders. God raised him up and now he's higher than David. He was killed and then resurrected. And we are the witnesses to it. We have seen him. And now, and now the Spirit is being poured out for your seeing and hearing to prove that he was God's son and the words that he spoke were true. He was God's son, Peter says. And then goes even a step farther to say he was God's son and you killed him. He was God's son and you crucified him. In verse 36, Peter says, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's all about Jesus for Peter. It's all about Jesus. He uses scripture to point to Jesus. And then, and then, as he does that, he gives opportunity for a response. He gives opportunity for repentance. Right away, he says, this is, this is, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says in verse 36. And now when they hear this in 37, it says, when they hear this, they're cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? If this is true, if all these scriptures that you're telling me are true and they're pointing to Jesus as the Son, and Jesus is, in fact, the Son, and we did, in fact, cry out to crucify him just 50 days ago, what do we do now? And Peter, again, says there's only one, there's only one reasonable response, Peter says. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's only one reasonable response. If you know that the Scripture is true, if you know that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, there's only one thing left for you to do. 
Repent. And when you repent, your repentance brings forgiveness, he says. Your repentance brings a gift of the Holy Spirit, and your repentance brings a new hope, a new destiny. He says, you will save yourselves from a crooked generation. There's only one reasonable response. Repent. Turn from your sin. Realize the wrongdoing that you have done, he says. Repent and be baptized, knowing knowing the name of Jesus. So this morning, as we look at this message and we walk through this, the question that we have to ask ourselves is why does this matter to you and I? Why does this matter to you and I? We already know these truths. That's, that's why we're gathered here together. We're, we're, we're the next part of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit that day. The church begins that day, but we're a part of that. We know these truths. We probably have, have, have already come to that repentance and called out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have felt and know the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're added to the group of believers. Why do we need to know these things? Why is this in here outside of just a narrative giving us the story? We don't need to know how to preach the message that Peter preached. So why does it matter for you and I? It matters because of Numbers chapter 11. The story of Moses and says, oh, wouldn't it be great if one day, if one day the Spirit comes and lives on all believers. If one day all believers might have the grace and knowledge and wisdom that comes from God through his Spirit on them so that they also might help so that they also might lead, so that they also might guide and teach, so that they also might encourage and sharpen and exhort and train and pray. Those are all words that we're called to do and to be in Scripture. Not every one of us will stand up before 3,000 and preach like Peter did. But the Spirit has been given to each one of us so that we all might join in the process of raising others up around us. We might not preach to 3,000, but we have ample opportunity to share. We preach to ourselves. We preach to our families. Parents preach to their children. And how might we do that? How might we preach to our friends and our neighbors and encourage and sharpen and train? How might we do that? I think Peter gives us a great example. Start with scripture. Turn to God's word. Know it. Use it so that people might see that scripture is the primary speaker in every message. Point to Jesus as Peter did. Point to Jesus so that we might see that there is hope in no other name except in him. Point to the hope that comes in the gospel 
that Jesus, Jesus made a way for us to have our sins forgiven so that the third thing that Peter did was that gave, a, gave an opportunity for them to repent. Gave an opportunity for them to respond. We turn people to the scripture so that they might see that there's nowhere else to go except for Jesus. And then we allow opportunity to repent. We allow opportunity to say, Jesus Christ is the way to have your sins forgiven. Jesus Christ is the way to have your sins forgiven so that you might have the gift of the Holy Spirit and so that you might have a new hope and a new destiny. That you might not be a member of the crooked generation, but instead will be a part of the body of believers, followers of Christ, the bride of Christ, and an heir with the Son. He gives us opportunity through Jesus. And so may we, those who the Spirit has come upon, may we take that mantle just as Moses had called us to do in Numbers 11. May we take that mantle, lead people to Scripture, point people to Jesus, just as Peter did, and then allow opportunity for repentance. 3,000 people that day were added to the church. 3,000 people were added to the 120 that had gathered in the room. Next week, We'll continue on in this passage in, in chapter 2, looking at what does it look like when 3,000 people join the church, when, when the Spirit begins to work on those early believers, what does that mean for them, and what does that mean for us? The worship team is going to lead us this morning. We're going to sing about the grace and peace that God has provided for us through his Spirit that lives in us this morning. So please, stand with me this morning as we worship. and thieves for the worthless the least you have said that our judgment is death for all eternity without hope without rest oh what an amazing mystery what an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Atonement 
hearts you break the vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed can be free oh what an amazing mystery what an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me gratefulness ever eyes never cease loved by God and called as a saint my heart is satisfied in the riches of Christ oh what an amazing mystery what an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. What amazing love I see. Oh, what an amazing love I see. What an amazing love I see that your grace has come to me. Oh, what an I see what an amazing love I see that your grace has come to me your grace has come to me God Moses wished for it Peter proclaimed it, and we sing about it, that your grace has come to us and your spirit lives in us. So God, I pray that you might help us to live lives that proclaim that hope, that we might preach to ourselves, that we might preach to those around us, and we might follow the example of Peter to share from your word point to Jesus and to give opportunity for hope and repentance. God, lead us in that these weeks. Help us. Help us to chase after you. And help us to know as our benediction this morning that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.